Lord, we give you all the praise this morning. We thank you for who you are, for all that you've done for us. Thank you that you're not a hidden God, but you've revealed so clearly who you are, your heart for us, your heart for our world through your word. And so as we come to open your word together, I pray that we'll have open hearts, Lord, to hear what you have for each one of us, wherever we are on the journey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are looking forward to part two, week two of our series in Romans. And we're really blessed to have Pastor Peter, our founding pastor, bringing God's word. So can you make Peter feel really welcome as he comes to share with us now? Thanks, Nath, and uh, thanks, church. How good is it to be in church? I just love coming to church. Um, and I just want to give my welcome. It's your first time ever with us. Well, I pray you'll come back after my sermon today. <laughs> Actually, I do pray that. Anyway, we'll get to that in just a moment. But we're into week two of the book of Romans. And we've called this preaching series God's Good News because the book of Romans provides the clearest explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. And Pastor Nathan brought a terrific word last, last week. Actually, thanks, brother. It was just, thanks for the work. It was just great. And, 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 and Nathan gave us a wonderful visual picture um, of the good news when he explained with his stools and the books and that it's not just about the forgiveness of sin, but it's about the gift of Christ's righteousness being given to us. More of that is coming in the weeks ahead. It's an incredible gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. It's God's good news. It really is. The gospel is of unspeakable comfort to us. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the good news begins in dismay. So we've got a dismay sermon today, folks, just preparing you for that. Uh, we're in chapter 2. Now, before we read a number of verses from this chapter, I, I thought I should start just with an encouragement just to sort of, you know, get, get something good right up front. So I, I pray that this will be so um, because it can be hard hearing tough news. It can be. Um, last week in our family, we had to deal with some very concerning news. Um, Banjo, one of our two guinea pigs, was taking a walk in our backyard with one of the grandchildren and he was on the little lead. And somehow or other, he managed to get off his lead and then he got under our deck. We've got a low deck, a very low deck. And um, he wouldn't come out. Whatever coaxing we did, he wouldn't come there. We couldn't shoo him out, couldn't get him out at all. Um, that's a concerning situation because bad things happen to little guinea pigs who rely on their own resources. You do know that. And when they're on the run, anything can get them and bad things can, bad things can occur. This was terrible news in our family, obviously, uh, because our grandchildren um, love our little um, guinea pigs. One of the family messages said this, Maxwell has been very faithful in his prayers for Banjo, even tears last night for him. Oh, dear. Responsibility as grandparents, you can feel it. Can you can feel the concern in us? Well, big concern. That's the dismay that I'm talking about this morning when it comes. But I can let you know the end of this story. And it's good news because Granny, very skilled, was able to devise a smart plan just to entice Banjo into a little cage thing that we had with a little hole so we could get in there. And then she waited patiently on the deck for a long time and snapped down the thing. And there's our little Banjo. There's our little Banjo. <laughs> Secure again. 
You're secure again. And after two days, he was two days on the run. Two days it was. Safely home with his good friend Buster. So it's good news, folks. I just want, and, and you've got to hang in after today because um, the good news in the fullness is coming. Um, Pastor Nathan gave us some last week, praise God. So, but, but today it's a bit more dismaying what we're going to look at. Um, you may have noticed, but in your own life, some of the greatest good news stories begin with tough news. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? So I want you to hang in there today as we look at these confronting truths from Romans 2. And just know that this understanding is critically important for us in our understanding of the good news. So you ready? I'm going to read some verses from 1 to 5 and then 17 to 24. This is God's word. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is God's word to us this morning. Mm. This, this chapter follows the latter section of chapter 1 where Paul was pointing out that those who turn their backs on God... Those who indulge in every sinful desire they can possibly think up, well, they will face God's justice and God's judgment. For those in the Roman church, hearing this assessment of wicked, evil, greedy, depraved people, many, many would have been nodding their heads in strong agreement. Yes, yes, that's, those people, they certainly do need condemnation. They need God's justice. But in chapter 2, as we have just read, Paul shifted his address from the destiny of the unrighteous to the destiny of those who are working on their own righteousness. The self-righteous, if we can term it that way. You can see it in the change of pronouns from chapter 1 where he used they. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They are full of envy, murder and strife. 
Whereas in chapter 2, he begins verse 1 with what? With you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You are storing up wrath for yourself. I'm not sure if you've ever realized this, but it's far harder for seemingly good people to receive the gospel than it is for those who are in full-scale debauchery. Did you know that? It's harder for good people. In the hearts of blatant sinners, they know they're far from God and they are deserving of his wrath. But for the good, for the moral, for the religious, the self-righteous, it's, it's much harder to grasp hold of the truth that God would condemn them. I've been asking the Holy Spirit this week to do one of his, one of his hardest works, and that is to help us to see any elements of the self-righteous life that is influencing our lives. It's his hardest work. Great mercy is needed this morning because as Jesus found, the ones who knew most about God's ways were in fact the hardest of hearing. It's hard to hear this. So I thought... You might like to offer a prayer right now. Nathan prayed for us before, but I just invite you to pray a short prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you any self-righteousness that exists in your life, in my life. Ready to do that? Why don't you do that just now? Bow your head for a moment. Just ask the Lord. Lord, we're asking you to examine ourselves, which the Scripture tells us, tells us to do. We're asking you, Holy Spirit, to examine us. Come in your mercy, Lord, we pray, in this very service. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're ready. As we enter into chapter 2, as I highlight some of the characteristics Paul describes in this chapter of the self-righteous heart, the first is found in verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now let me clarify, first of all, that we are to make appropriate judgments about sin. We are meant to recognize that adultery and murder are sins against others and sins against God. If you don't call these to be sin, then you're actually lining up. You're lining up with those in Romans 1.32 who are described as approving of those who practice sin. So it's right to make the judgment that these are sin. But the passing of judgment that Paul is speaking about here is not simply saying adultery and murder are wrong, but rather it's those who commit adultery and murder. These are the ones who deserve God's condemnation. The implication of the judgment is that I don't do those things. So that then makes me a better person and someone who will do Better, obviously, when it comes to God's judgment of my life. By looking at the shortcomings of others, it, 
It serves to minimise one's own failings. But the standard of righteousness which God sets, those standards aren't just focused on the externals, the external actions. It looks much, much deeper within. It looks to the attitudes of the hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words, You have heard it said, that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That is what the self-righteous have such difficulty seeing. Let me ask you a really personal question this morning. Have you ever been angry with someone? Are you angry with someone at this moment of time? It may or may not have been expressed in word, but there's a contempt, a hostility, a coldness of heart to someone. Well, according to Jesus, you are subject to the same judgment from God as a murderer. Hold on a moment. Hold on. Isn't, isn't that a bit over the top? <laughs> That's what the self-righteous immediately think. God's judgment is for those who are in the jails of Queensland. And they deserve it. But I'm not in that class. And so by implication, that means my greater righteousness will obviously get me over the line on judgment day because I'm better than them. That's how huge numbers of people think in our society and in our churches actually. But the bar that, that they or maybe we have set, it of course falls way, way short of the bar that God has set. Some of you may not know about my sporting career I was a high jumper. I competed for my house team Wattle at Oakley State School in the 1960s. Yes, I am that old. You didn't know that, but I am, yeah. As I look out here this morning, I imagine there's a lot of you that I could beat in a high jump competition. I'm looking at Heather right now. I bet I could beat Heather down there. I bet I could. Take her easy. No trouble. And I could dream that I'm some amazing high jumper because I once made it over three foot six or whatever it was and I, I keep looking out here at every vertically challenged person and I'm thinking, yeah, I've still got what it takes, still got what it takes. But you know what? I'm really dreaming. Aren't I? You know that. You, you know that. Yeah. I don't know if you... Notice the morning that Nicola McDermott, the silver medalist in the high jump at the last Olympics, worshipped very near to me. She was in the front row with her husband. When I was putting my hands up in the air, I was getting near to her head. That's the truth. <laughs> I noticed it that day. <laughs> yeah. 
And on that morning, any illusions about my high-jumping career were put in proper perspective, weren't they? However good their self-righteous paint themselves to be, the truth is they fall far, far, far short of God's bar for the righteous life, which is the quality of Jesus' life. That's the standard for heaven, folks. Nothing less than that. And so to sit in judgment on others, thinking how much better you are than others, is as silly as me sitting next to Nicola McDermott and thinking I'm a good high jumper. It's that silly, really. By highlighting the sins of others, passing judgments in order to reinforce how moral and good one is in comparison is actually adding to the weight of one's sin. Did you know that? It's adding to it. Let me ask you another personal question. When is the last time you passed a judgment about someone's perceived failings? And why did you make that judgment about them? Why did you? And let me ask you this too. When when is the last time you can remember asking God to forgive you for making a self-righteous judgment about someone in your world. When's the last time you did that? Paul, he has begun building his case that we are all under God's judgment and our self-righteous judgments of others further reveals how desperately short we actually fall of God's standard of righteousness. Judgment belongs to the self-righteous, you see. What also characterizes the self-righteous is that they don't perceive their need to be forgiven. For the non-religious who are self-righteous, they remain confident in their good works on planet Earth. And should that, you know, happen to be a God, well, they have a, a good lot down here to show him. That, that's what great masses of Australians believe. You've, I'm sure you've probably run into that as you talk with people. And if there did happen to be an afterlife, well, their good life means they're headed that way. For those who are religious, well, obviously their many deeds of righteousness will stand them in good stead when it comes to their eternal destiny. It's obvious. Their good lives are here on earth are building the grounds for their salvation in the next life. The support of that belief lies in the fact, well, life's going, life's going well here. Nothing untowards happened to us, so God must be pleased with how we're doing life. But Paul has a different take on any delay about God's judgment. This is what he says in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul's saying here that God is holding back on the judgment of sin to give everyone this opportunity to humbly turn to him and ask for forgiveness. 
The self-righteous, religious or non-religious, they live lives that are largely repentance-free because from their perspective, there's nothing of consequence really to seek God's forgiveness about. I'm leading a good life. One of the most disturbing of the parables, well, this this is how I feel about it anyway. One of the most disturbing parables was the one that Jesus told of the prodigal son. It's not a, the section about, you know, what's, who's traditionally known as the prodigal son, the wayward son who, you know, frittered away his inheritance on wine and women. The forgiveness that the father extends to this son, is, it, it's wonderful. That's great. But it's the reaction of the older son to his younger brother being welcomed home that is so unsettling for me it appeared that the elder brother had been the good faithful loving son working on the farm with his dad but so much is revealed when when he hears about the fatted calf being killed so that it can have the feast with this the younger brother that's been welcomed home And this is what we hear in the story that Jesus told. We hear, first of all, of his anger at the perceived injustice of what's taking place. And so he refuses to join in the celebration. That's what anger does. Separates you from people. And then in the conversation which follows with his father, much, much more is revealed. He begins with a boast, a boast about his hard work and faithful obedience. But he lets slip, he lets slip that his service in the, on, on the farm was, was, was really just a big, big, begrudging compliance when he says to his father, I've been slaving for you. Slaving, that's the word that's used here. He's full of judgment towards his brother, whom he, he won't even call his brother. He refers to him, he's your son. He's your son. And then the put down, who's wasted his inheritance on prostitutes. You know, let's just make it clear. Run the judgment on him. His interaction with his father ends with him complaining that he's never thrown him a party, revealing a son who's, who's, who's just unaware of the love of the father. He, he's as alienated relationally from his father as his wayward brother was when he was in the distant land. But there's no humble repentance for this son, this prodigal son, away from the father. The older son here, you see it, he's displaying all the characteristics that mark the self-righteous in Romans 2. It often looks like the self-righteous are very busy storing up a big pile of goodness for judgment day, working hard on the farm, so to speak. But angry, boasting, judgmental, unrepentant hearts are actually storing up all the things which bring God's judgment. That's the thing. The things which separate a man or a woman from God. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, And your unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath against yourself. For the day of God's wrath. 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Let me ask you something. I'm asking some very personal questions this morning. I know that. When did you last ask God the Father to forgive you for sinning? When did you last do that? Like sincere repentance. The self-righteous don't think they need to do much of that. A third common characteristic of the self-righteous is their use of religion. The the unrighteous, they don't care about God. The rules are not for them. They're the masters of their own fate. But those who value right and wrong on planet Earth, they are much more inclined towards religion. In verse 17 of this chapter, Paul addresses those of great religious heritage, the Jews. Listen. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the Lord and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the Lord, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Religious pedigree is a really big deal for the self-righteous. We, we Jews, we belong to the tradition where God has a really long history of doing great things. In fact, just, just being Jewish automatically puts you in the God camp because Jews were God's special people. There's measures of truth to this. I understand that. The self-righteous, you see, they they put such emphasis on the pedigree. They're very big on the club that they belong to as being the one specially chosen by God and their brand of religious practice, better and purer than others, making the judgments, you can hear it. The self-righteous are also big on knowledge, for, their, for the Jews, it was their knowledge of God's law, a wonderful revelation from God. We understand that. We'll hear more about that in Romans. It led them to believe that they knew more about others concerning God's will. They had a better grip on truth than others. They loved being seen as the authority on what God had said, what's right and wrong, according to their interpretation of the law. Jesus had a slightly different take on that, of course. But knowledge is always prominent among the self-righteous. They hear a biblical truth and they think, well, that would be good for that person to hear. They make a biblical truth known, but then they fail to to check their own hearts, let it change their own hearts. And in verse 25, Paul adds another feature of the Jews' assurance about their right standing with God's circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. The Jews, you see, they saw the outward mark of circumcision as a sure, that was a sure guarantee that they were right with God. The religious put great emphasis on the rituals the traditions the the externals that confirm their right standing with God is this not familiar territory is this not how many older and some younger people in our nation 
are counting on their christening into the Christian faith to assure them that everything will be okay in the next life. How many? How many people are banking on their baptism or their church attendance or sharing in communion to affirm that they've covered the bases off with God? So when it comes to that day, they'll be able to say, hey, these things, we've got these. How many people in religious communities engage in good deeds just to make sure that there is a healthy ledger for God to consider on judgment day? There is nothing wrong with religious practice. I'm glad you're here. I pray you'll come back next week too, even after this sermon. I do pray that. But if the externals aren't matched with the inner commitments of authentic faith, then, what, then whatever form those acts take, they become in effect a form of religion bringing no value, no value to one's faith, but rather sowing the seeds of false assurance and spiritual pride. That's what it does. That's what religion does. Did you notice that in verses 17 and 23? Paul, a Jew himself, notes the attitude of the religious Jew. You brag. You brag about your relationship to God. Verse 23, you brag about the law. Spiritual pride has plagued the people of God. And let me be more specific, maybe. Spiritual pride plagues all of us, folks. It does. Let me ask you something. When did you last ask Jesus to forgive you for comparing your faith to someone else's faith? For seeing yourself as more godly than them, as more knowledgeable maybe, more, more honouring, more, more devoted, the intensity of devotion, that's you. More, maybe you're more generous than others, more, more serious about Christian faith, more, more effective, more prayerful, more whatever the comparison might be. I'm speaking actually most of all to those who mature in the faith here this morning, and I'm one of these. Because these are actually not the battles of the young and the faith. They, they know they've got so much further to go. They're just beginning the journey. But for we who've been on the journey longer, these are the temptations that we have to face and deal with, folks. They crouch. They're crouching at our hearts, folks. They crouch. There's one more characteristic that you find in the self-righteous. It's probably more a consequence of seeking to make your own righteousness. Paul writes this in verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, the problem with making your own righteousness is that however good you may be, the reality is that you will never be good enough. Willpower it may help you with some of the things, but there will, be, there will be places of failure 
because no human righteousness is sufficient to resist all sin. So what do the, what do the self-righteous do with their imperfections? What do they do with them? Well, some lower the bar, as you know, we were thinking about earlier. They grant special exemptions to themselves. That's one way you can deal with that. And many place their imperfections behind closed doors. So they can give the external appearance of being righteous. But as we all know, the truth about the inconsistencies of the self-righteous, they have a way of showing up, don't they? They can show up in that superior air, their, their sanctimonious feel, their, their judgments on others. They're, they're, they're making plenty of those. And that in a Christian, that reflects so poorly on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, does it not, you see? And then when the secret sins of those who claim to, to, to honour God do come out, it, it brings terrible disgrace to God's name. Throughout Scripture, um, there's, a, there's a sad trial of those who brought dishonour to God's name when hidden things were revealed. David, probably the best known of these, when he was king, brought contempt, it says, to God's name when his adultery with Bathsheba came out into the open. Shame on God's name. Israel caused the profaning, the profaning, it says, of God's name among the nations through their spiritual adultery. Those who are meant to be the light to the world. And sadly, we too are not unfamiliar, are we? With the disgrace being brought on God's name among non-believers, this is, when the secret failings of God's people have been revealed. Now, don't get confused about who Paul's addressing here. He's drawing attention to those who are hypocrites. Those who make out that they are living righteously by, by the way they conduct themselves. But their persona, their, their actions, obvious or disguised, are not consistent with what they are proclaiming. That's what the hypocrite is. And when that's done under God's banner, then God's name is scorned and God's name will be ridiculed among non-believers. So let me ask you, as I've been asking these sort of questions throughout this sermon, have you ever humbly asked God's forgiveness for bringing shame to his name because of the inconsistency of your life, the inconsistencies of your life? The essence of Paul's arguments in Romans 2 is that if you seek to make yourself right with God through any work of your own, religious or otherwise, then rather than it leading to God's acceptance, it only leads to your condemnation. That's the thing. It's adding to the sins of your life. Now let me remind you of God's response to these characteristics of the self-righteous. The self-righteous, they're marked with pride 
because of their superior goodness. But 1 Peter 1.5 says what? God opposes the proud. They're opposed by God. The self-righteous are full of judgments about the failings of others. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. The self-righteous see that they don't need to repent because of their personal goodness and holiness. Failing to understand what we see in Romans 2, 4 here, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's repentance that God leads us to because he loves us. They love the religious life, especially the knowledge and the rituals and the markers because it seemingly assures them of their rightness with God. But Jesus said these words in Luke eleven fifty two, And this wasn't the only time he said something like this. He said things like this much. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. I've actually taken it away. You yourselves have not entered not applied to their hearts, and you have hindered those who were entering. And the self-righteous are skilled in minimising and hiding their inconsistencies, the inconsistencies about their, you know, their proclaimed goodness, but the inconsistencies are there. Listen. Romans 3.24, this is the effect of that. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Self-righteousness, it's a disastrous path. That's that's what I really want you to grab hold of this morning. I believe the Holy Spirit's saying that. Self-righteousness, it's disaster. And like the path of the unrighteous, It leads to God's condemnation. Both those paths. Now, if this is the first time that you have ever been made aware that self-righteousness in whatever form it's expressed won't take you to God, but will take you away from him. Well, I I just want to say you you must please, please keep coming. Please keep watching online. Please keep watching online. Because there is a wonderful way that God has opened us for us to be made right with him. And we'll be hearing about that in the future. Chapters of of Romans. Nathan, praise God, Nathan's mentioned it. It'd be very gloomy news otherwise if we hadn't already heard a whisper of the good news. But there's more coming. But you can prepare. if, If this is like revelatory for you, because you've never understood this before, never grasped hold that good works are insufficient, then you can prepare this morning for that good news by simply praying this prayer. Lord, have mercy on me. Did you get that? So if it's new news, you pray that prayer. And if you pray that prayer, I'm going to assure you God loves that prayer. We know that from the scriptures that he loves that prayer. And in his great kindness, he will lead you to repentance and the gift of his son Jesus and his righteousness. That's what's coming. Now, if you're here this morning or you're watching online as well, 
and you understand the gospel well. And I know that's many, many people here in this church. You know what Jesus has done and you've put your faith and trust in him. Part of the purpose that Jesus had for us this morning in reflecting on the bankruptcy of the self-righteous life was so that the Holy Spirit would have an opportunity to just examine our hearts again. The the traits of the self-righteous life, spiritual superiority, quickness to judge, little repentance, love of religious prominence, the minimizing and covering of sin, they do crouch. They crouch constantly at the door of our hearts. And, And they can even take lodging sometimes within us Without us being even aware of their presence. It's so deceptive, you see, the self-righteous life. But they're toxic, folks. These things are toxic. Toxic. They were toxic for the eldest son, weren't they? Toxic in his relationship with his father and toxic in his relationship with his brother. Toxic. They were toxic for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Not only for those people, but for those that they were leading. And they're toxic for us, folks. They wreck, they wreck relationships in families. That's what these do. They wreck relationships in churches. Toxic in churches. And they hinder more than anything the reviving work of the Holy Spirit because these things are often so deep or hidden, so unseen in our lives. And that's why this morning I ask you to courageously ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, my heart, And it's why we need to keep humbly asking for God's mercy and grace in this church, folks. We do. We all do. So you're ready to pray, are you? This has been God's word to us. Oh, Holy One, Holy One. We've been in your beautiful presence, Lord. We've been so aware of that. And and you're you're a God who's so committed. It's why you gave Jesus, Lord. I I know that. But but you're committed to lead us into the wonder and beauty of relationship with your precious son. The, The only one. the only one in whom we can find a way to be right with God. And so, for those, Lord, where this is new for them this morning, I do pray, Lord, that they will pray, have mercy on me. Help them, Lord, I would pray. Lead them. We're trusting you to do that. Help them, Lord, we pray. Help those in Alpha this afternoon, Lord, to grasp these beautiful, wonderful truths, even in the dismay of the discovery the inadequacies of our good lives.
And for us here, Lord, this morning who have walked with you maybe for many, many years, Lord. Oh, God, keep us humble, we pray. Do keep us humble. Have mercy on us, God. Have mercy. Lead us to repentance again and again and again. May we live the repentant life. Oh, God. Oh, God. Deal with the hidden things of our lives, Lord, we pray. We're asking you, please, gracious one. Holy Spirit, search us now. Lord, Lord, rid, rid us of the judgment of others, Lord, we pray. Wash us clean by your precious Holy Spirit. Save us from spiritual pride and spiritual prominence. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God, we're crying out to you, Lord, because we need you. We sang it before, Lord, but it's true. We need you, Holy One. We need you. We want to be people, Lord, who bring fame to the name of Jesus Christ, honour to the name of Jesus Christ. That's who we long to be, Lord. Help us, Lord. We cannot do this in our own strength, but in the strength of Jesus, in the righteousness of Jesus. Then, Lord, you do amazing things. And so thank you for your work among us, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you for your precious blood, Lord, your mercy, yeah. your kindness right now that washes over us, oh Lord. We thank you that there's not condemnation in Jesus Christ. There's not. Yeah. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to him. And so, Lord, continue your work, Lord, now I pray, even as we sing this song, as we chat afterwards, as we contemplate this week, Lord, Lord, Holy Spirit, stir in us, stir in us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Examine our hearts, Lord. May we be people, Lord, humble, humble before you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We've got to see the song. There's, there's no response this morning. This is in your heart, folks, but I pray that you will allow the Holy Spirit to do his work there. You respond to him. It's easy just to walk out and let it all go. But if he's been speaking, you continue to allow him to do the fullness of the work that he's wanting to do and bringing healing and restoration to your life. But as we sing this song, it does actually have that line. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. There's a part in the song that talks about the prodigal. Don't think about the wayward prodigal. Think about the elder son. That's the prodigal we're talking about today. The elder son prodigal. Think about him. The Father's mercy was there for him. Did you know that? It was there for him. It's there for us. So come, let's stand. Thank our great God for all his loving kindness, his mercy that leads us to repentance.
for your heart. We thank you this morning for your word, for your spirit, Lord, revealing things to us. And Lord, we do ask for your forgiveness this morning where we have fallen in uh, to often the hidden part of self-righteousness in our lives, sense of superiority over others, judgmental towards others, Lord, so easily just creeps into our hearts, into our lives into your church. We pray, Lord, you forgive us. You forgive us, Lord, where we have 
allowed this to, to come in, great God. It's, it hinders, Lord. It hinders the work of your Spirit in our lives, through your church. It hinders the witness, Lord, of your love and your grace to our world. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you will help us. Already searching our hearts to continue to help us this week, Lord, I pray. To show this part so often hidden, so subtle, Lord. But Lord, by your Spirit, you want to help us here. You want to help us. And as we're able to bring this towards you, Lord, the blessing that can flow, blessing to relationships, blessing to oneness and unity, blessings to the power of our witness in our community, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for your spirit taking a word, applying it to our hearts and our lives, Lord. May you continue just to help us to continue just to search our hearts, we pray this week. Thank you, Lord, that your kindness brings us to repentance. Thank you that your word helps us to see these things, Lord, because you love us and you want to pour out your blessing and you want many more to know the good news, Lord. You want many more. So we say thank you this morning for revealing these things to us. Pray you'll bless us now. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A powerful word this morning for us. If you'd like prayer in some way, some of our prayer to me down the front, our prayer lounge at the back, we'd love to pray for you. Don't forget our welcome morning tea if you're new this morning across in our chapel. We'd love to greet you there and welcome you as well. But thanks so much for sharing us with those online as well. God bless you. We look forward to sharing together again soon.